You'll notice in, in both of the hymns that we just sang, there's an underlying theme there of Christ as king who goes to the cross, either Christ as sovereign who dies for us, or Christ as Lord who suffers for us. Right? And so keep that theme in mind here as I read from our gospel that Christ is the king who has come to die. And listen here as we hear in the gospel of John, listen to some of some of the dialogue, some of the irony that pops up in, in our reading when it comes to Christ being the king who has come to reign. So I'm reading this evening from John chapter 18, and starting with verse 28. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priest and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, 
you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. And therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to be crucified. In the Gospel of John, John sets up the narrative, he sets up the story of Jesus' crucifixion to make one point very obvious to us, to make it very clear that Christ is in fact king, right? And, and there's this irony beneath the whole narrative of Pilate is kind of mocking Jesus, right? Are you really the king of the Jews? What have you done to your people? Why are they handing you over? There's this irony of the crowds mocking him in the gospel, right? Of Christ being given a crown of thorns, given a purple robe to wear, right? Mocked as a king, right? But it's out of that irony, out of that mocking, that the truth becomes very clear, right? That Christ is, in fact, king. And so John wants us to see in his gospel that it's from the cross. It's from the cross that Jesus as king is reigning. It's where he is truly crowned. His throne in this moment is the cross. And when it's exalted on the cross, that's when he's exalted over the entire world. So in the Lord's Prayer, in the second petition, we ask, we ask God, thy kingdom come. Right, let your kingdom arrive. Make your kingdom apparent to us. Show us your kingdom. Bring your kingdom to this world. And so we can start in talking about this petition with this very basic truth from the gospel, which is whatever God's kingdom is, whatever that is, whatever that phrase means, it should not be separated from the cross. It should not be separated from who Christ has shown us he is on the cross, right? And on the cross, Christ has shown us that he is true sacrificial love, that he is the perfect lamb of God who has been slain for the sins of the world. And so when we talk about God's kingdom, that's the ultimate image, and that's the final image we want to have, right? That God's kingdom looks something like what Christ has done for us on the cross. So last week we talked about different, ra different ways to read the Bible, right? Sometimes we can just read a verse of the Bible and, and find inspiration in one verse. Or sometimes, like on Sunday morning, we'll look at a passage in the Bible. Or sometimes in Bible study, we'll look at a whole book and study the argument of a whole book. But the final way to read the Bible as is one book itself, right? And as one book itself, there are themes and topics and ideas that are woven in and through that text. So last week we talked about God's name and this idea of God's name and God's reputation as, as a theme woven through the text of the Bible. 
Well, here again in the second petition, we have a theme that's really woven through the story of the Bible. And this is the theme of God being king. So God being king is a theme that we're going to find first way back in the Old Testament in in the books of Moses. And we're going to see it kind of develop throughout the Old Testament. And then we're ultimately going to see its climax in the person of Christ. Christ reveals this theme for us. He shows us truly what God intends this theme to be for us. So as I start back in the Old Testament, uh, you, of course, know the story well, that the Israelites are delivered from Egypt. right? And part of Israel's deliverance is that they're delivered from a wicked king themselves. right? Pharaoh, as a king, is claiming to have this authority over God's people. Uh, he's restricting clearly how they live, most certainly how they worship. Um, and in fact, you know, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, he doesn't just say, let my people go. He says, let my people go out so they can worship the Lord. So Pharaoh is clearly restricting the people and how they can worship. They're not allowed to serve God as they would wish. Um, and so Israel's early history then is very much a history of kind of fighting against the authority of a king, right? That there's this wicked king over them. And so when God delivers Israel out of Egypt, he gives them the law. He does not give them a king, right? So the purpose then, God says, of the nation of Israel is to show the people of the world what it would look like if a people lived with God as their king. Right, so the Israelites come out of Egypt and come out of the wilderness and they're supposed to go into the promised land and live with only God as their king. Right, and so as, as people who then are supposed to live this way, people who follow the law, right, they're supposed to be a witness to what it would look like if God were king. And so there were judges and there were prophets and there were priests who had to deal with kind of state matters and religious matters. But the idea is that the final authority, the final word, was the very word of God, right? The Lord was the final authority in all matters when it came to Israel. They had no king because they were always supposed to return to the Lord, right? And as such, they were supposed to be a people who were free. Uh, they weren't subject to an earthly king. They weren't having to serve a pharaoh-like king again. They weren't having to be made slaves. They weren't fighting wars for a king, anything like that. Right? These were people who were free to serve God just as God had told them to. And so they were living as if God were to be king. Well, this, this gets kind of a wrench thrown into it in the book of 1 Samuel. And so I'm going to read for you here just a few verses from 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting at verse 4. Right, so the idea here, again, Israel is supposed to live as God as king. They have prophets over them who point them to the word of God. They have judges who arbitrate for them. But ultimately, God is the final authority. So reading from 1 Samuel 8, 4. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to the prophet Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself command, commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and all of your vineyards and give to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves, the best of your cattle and donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer in that day. Right, so the Israelites ask for a king because they want to be like the other people of the world. Right, they say, oh, look, everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? You know, and the Lord says, all right, you want a king, you're going to get a king. Right, but you're going to pay taxes to this king. Your sons are going to fight in his army. He's going to take from you. It's only going to be taking. Right? And so Israel's desire for a king, the Lord interprets it as a rejection of God himself. And of course, God is right. right? The rest of the Old Testament is filled with stories of kings who lead Israel astray. Very, very few are the good kings that were told about in the Old Testament. The vast majority of the kings are wicked. They follow other gods. They don't listen to God. They don't listen to the prophets. And kings over and over and over reject God. Well, so what does this say then about Christ as king? Right, I think it's making a clear statement. All of the Gospels in one way or another talk about Christ as king. Like we just heard in John. John makes it very clear to us. But I think in understanding that Christ is king in the big biblical story, we're understanding that God is returning to be the king of the people. And God is returning as king not only to the people of Israel, but to the whole world, to all peoples. Right? God is making himself known to the world through Christ so that the whole world now can have God as king. Israel, as we see in the Old Testament, fails over and over and over to show what it would look like to have God as king, right? And so God himself then takes this on and says, I will give you myself as king. And he gives himself to us as Christ. So 
in the New Testament, then, again, we pray as Christ taught us that thy kingdom come. And so this word kingdom, in English, the word kingdom very much speaks to us, I think, about geography, right? Like the kingdom is the land over which the king has authority, over which the king reigns. The Greek word, however, I think is more nuanced than that. So the Greek word is basileia. Um, you may know the English word basilica. Comes from comes from that Greek word basileia. But it's a word that really does not indicate geography so much. It's not about the boundaries of where a king reigns. It's more like a word that speaks to activity. It's more something like rule or kingship. Right, so to pray for God's kingdom to come is really to pray to let God's rule, God's activity, assert itself even more apparently in the world. Right, we're not praying when we say, let thy kingdom come. We're not saying, you know, God set up boundaries, geographic boundaries, where you're going to be king. Rather, we're saying, God, let your rule be known more and more in this world. Right? Let your activity be more obvious and obvious in this world. Right? And through that activity and through that rule, let the whole world know that you're truly sovereign. And so much of Christ's teaching ministry then answers kind of this question, what does it look like for God to rule? Right? What does the kingdom of God look like? Or in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Right, what does the kingdom of God look like? And so Jesus gives many, many different parables to talk about the kingdom of God. And so you'll remember in reading the Gospels that the parables often start, the kingdom of God is like, right? The kingdom of God is like. A couple Sundays we'll get the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, you know, and it's, it introduces that parable the same way. The kingdom is like this. So perhaps one of the earliest parables we get about what the kingdom of God is like is in Mark chapter 4. Right? And Jesus says, The kingdom is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and puts forth large branches so that birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Right, so what is, what is Christ saying about what God's kingdom is going to look like? What God's activity or God's rule looks like in this world? Well, the first thing he's telling us, of course, is that it does not look like the world's power. Right, if it's like a mustard seed, well, it's not like powerful armies. It's not like a treasury full of coin. It's not like what the world values or what the world sees as powerful. Rather, the kingdom of God is almost quiet, right? It's, it's not obvious to those who don't have eyes to see it, right? It's almost secret and interior. It's very subtle. Yet Christ says that subtlety of God's rule, of God's activity, of his kingdom, when it takes hold, Right? It flowers into a great shrub, puts forth branches, so many branches that birds make their nest in its shade. And, you know, and that's the idea, right? that 
It's not an obvious kingdom of the world, but when it takes hold in our heart, when God's activity takes hold in our heart, it grows into something remarkable. It becomes obvious to the world. Right? And not obvious in the worldly ways, but obvious in the ways of love, in the way of the cross. Right? To go back to that first principle, right? that the kingdom is shown most clearly in the cross of Christ. Well, in our lives too. Right? The kingdom is most obvious when we take up our crosses. Right? When we live for one another in sacrificial love. Right? When we accept the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Right? That's when the kingdom becomes obvious in us. In our reading from John 18 this evening, right, Christ says to Pilate, My kingdom is not from this world. Right? And so I think we want to be clear there in talking about God's kingdom. Right? He doesn't say that the kingdom isn't known in this world, but it's not from this world. Its origins are not in worldly things. Right? It's not in the kind of mistake that the Israelites made and wanting to have the kind of power that other nations have. Rather, the kingdom has its origins somewhere else. Right? The kingdom has its origins in God himself. And so the kingdom does make itself apparent and make itself seen in this world. Right? But it makes itself seen through the cross. Right? And that's the power of God's kingdom. It comes first and foremost through the cross of Christ. Uh, the early church father named Origen invented this great word for Christ. The word is autobasileia, right? Basileia meaning kingdom and auto meaning self. And he's saying Christ himself is the kingdom, right? Which is just great. Wherever Christ is, there the kingdom is known, right? And that's also true for us. Right? Where Christ is, there is the kingdom. When we're gathered together, Christ promises to be here with us. Well, in some way, the kingdom of God is asserting itself when we're here together. Whether that's through the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, whether that's through the love we share with one another, whether that's the love we show to the world. Right? When we gather together, Christ is here and the kingdom of God is here. Luther addresses this question in his large catechism, how does the kingdom come to us? Right? And he says, really, then, when we pray thy kingdom come, we can expect that the answer happens in two different ways. First, that the kingdom comes to us through the word and through faith, right? which is much as what we've been saying here, because those are the ways that we receive Christ himself. We receive Christ through hearing the word of God and through receiving it and trusting in it and believing in it through faith. Right? When we hear that word, that's where Christ is. And so that's how the kingdom comes to us. I want to read for you here from the book of Acts, the very first chapter. And I'm looking at verse 6. And then through verse 9. So it's interesting here. You know, it, it seems so obvious for us to talk about, well, God's kingdom is not from this world. God's kingdom is clearly 
of spiritual origins. It's not about the power of this world. But what we see in the beginning of the book of Acts is that even after the resurrection, the disciples still have not understood exactly what the kingdom of God is. Right. So reading here from Acts chapter 1, so this is after the resurrection, Christ has promised that the Holy Spirit is going to come to the disciples. And so verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? They're asking him, Jesus, okay, now is the time that you show us the real power, right? Is this the time that you're going to show us the armies and, and do all that stuff that we thought you were going to do? They still haven't got it. And Jesus replies, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Right, so as much as the disciples still wanted to keep this worldly and literal and physical, Christ is pointing them, saying, pointing to them to the Holy Spirit and really saying, the Holy Spirit is going to change your hearts. The Holy Spirit is going to show you just exactly what the kingdom of God is, right? When the Holy Spirit does that, then you will have something to take to the whole world, right? You'll be able to take this message to the world that God is truly king, that God is truly sovereign. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive it, right? And so that's part of what the church is to be. Right? The church is that witness to God's kingdom. Our mission is to tell the world that, yes, in fact, God is king, God is reigning, God rules. Even though so much seems wrong in this world, in fact, God is ruling. So Luther then says, you know, how does God's kingdom come to us? The first way it comes to us is through the word and through faith. But secondly, it comes completely and fully through the second coming of Christ. And so to illustrate that, I'm going to read one last passage, which will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And looking at verse 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Right, what St. Paul is getting at here is that right now, we're sort of in this yet-not-yet yet moment. God is, in fact, on the throne. God does, in fact, rule. 
right? But we still are living in this sinful age, right? And so we're proclaiming that, yes, Christ is present. Christ is here, right? But we're living with this kind of tension of knowing that death is still out there. The devil still roams around. And so Paul is saying then that at the second coming, it's going to be clear and obvious to everyone that God is, in fact, king. That it is at the second coming when there will be no separation between God and his creation. There will be no more sin or death or pain separating us. And at that point, it'll be obvious to all of creation that God is king. And so now, as people of God, we're living in that moment where we're waiting, right? God is bringing his kingdom about in us, in our hearts. He's showing the world his kingdom through us. But we're waiting for that day when it's finally and clearly and 100% obvious to all of creation. Right? And so we continue to pray, thy kingdom come. Right? First, let it come through our hearts. Let it come through our congregation. Let it come through our faith. But secondly, let it come fully and completely through the second coming of Christ.